if I bring a new sport that they kind of can relate to, but it's fun, it's fast, but if they're all equally terrible at, what it does is it actually levels the playing field in one of the few places in the world that we can actually legit level the playing field. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview podcast where we explore the shared experiences and non-traditional paths of the South Asian American community. My guest this week is Sean J. Chandran, a 6'4", shaved head, Canadian-turned-American nonprofit founder. Truly one of a kind. Sean founded Crossover Basketball, an entirely volunteer-run organization that keeps marginalized Indian children in school using basketball. Their programs have impacted over 2,000 kids, many of whom come from families making just $4 a day. 85% of crossover students start and finish high school compared to 40% in the same population. If you like sports, that was probably a pretty cool stat. During our interview, he explained the mechanism behind how basketball can help kids stay in school and empower young girls in India. I found the latter super fascinating. He shared the reasons why people volunteer for crossover and how he found a community of Indian Americans that bonded over not being able to play when they were younger. Sean also told me about his laser focus on impact and why that became a negative as the organization scaled. Aside from that, we talk about his parents, his mom literally grew up with nuns, and how his relationship with India has changed now that he's visiting Chennai every summer. Hope you enjoy. Sean J. Chandran, welcome to Brown People We Know. Sean, so is it true that you're 6'4"? <laughs> I, I am. I've got parents who are 5'8 and 5'2, but I, I ended up with some hit of a gene and 6'4, here I am. Worked out well. I grew like two and a half inches in college too, so. It's crazy. You must be like maybe top five tallest Indians. <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, I think when we've gone over to Crossover, we've had a few volunteers like Sai Tumala and Kieran Shastri who are like 6'7, six, 6'8. Six, wow. Eric Obasaker who's half Sri Lankan descent, he's 6'10". So even when I'm traveling to India, it's it's pretty humorous that I'm not the tallest. I'm clearly the tallest of like other people, but I don't even get noticed because our volunteers are getting picked up by the crowds. <laughs> That's hilarious. Your family's from Chennai. You yourself were born in Canada and moved to the US. But before I get into the move and the immigration, I want to start with your parents because they're both, it sounds like very fascinating people. Your mom grew up in an orphanage. Your dad was a mechanic that traveled the world. Can you tell me a little bit more about them? They are. Uh, if there's a movie ever about crossover, it's like it really should just be about them. But, but yeah, my mom was born and raised right into an orphanage in Chennai. So raised by nuns on side stories that when families would go back to India to visit family, we would legit visit nuns, which is very strange. But she busted her tail and she earned her way to a scholarship to high school, to University of Madras, and then eventually gets introduced to my dad, quasi-arranged marriage. He immigrates to Canada first. My dad is part of a huge family out of just outside Chennai. He has eight siblings and he goes to be a mechanic, learns a trade as hard as that can be, works his way up, starts a business and is an entrepreneur hustling. 
and earns enough money then capital, right? That he's able to immigrate to Canada and, and move in the late seventies where he essentially again, has to start over again, has to learn all the English terminology in Canada. You have to get some certifications to even work as a mechanic and then goes from there. But yeah, both of them just hardworking. And then, and then after being in Canada for almost 20 years, we get our green cards and I was 15 at the time when that happened. And they were like, yeah, Sean's really interested in going to, to university in the, in the U.S. Sure, we'll pick up and move again and move 3,000 something miles because we want our kids to have opportunities, which is just mind boggling to me. It's crazy. There's definitely, there seems to be like a certain drive. I mean, you've told the story of your mom stealing candles so she can study and yep. your dad, you know, for his career, just moving around. Is that what brought them to Canada? Was it for like jobs or were they always thinking about your education? So my dad had some older brothers in Canada. And so I think he was intrigued by that. And we still see it in India today, right? Social mobility to climb ladders is just not a, it's just not an option, unfortunately. Where you're born into, how much money your parents start with kind of sets your parameters. Whereas moving to to Canada, moving to U.S. does give you that flexibility. And, and I think it's something that a lot of our parents, they, they view that next generation. You know, you're in school, I was in school. I don't think we ever thought, think that way, right? We're not like, oh, where will our future kids that we don't have, like, how do we change their life? And, but those, those people did. And so like that move was pretty impressive. I make fun of my parents. We, I'm, I'm from Calgary, right? And it's cold, right? It'll get down to like minus 35 minus 40 some days consistently below minus 20 though in the winter but my parents legit left one of the hottest places in the world in chennai to move there and i was like what were you thinking <laughs> they just won't settle in regular weather i guess so it's interesting to hear that they moved because you wanted to go to a u.s college i'm curious about that move for you was it a lot of culture shock when you went from calgary to the u.s or did it feel like you're in the same place it's a great question. Um, 16 year old Sean would have told you, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. As I've gotten older though and reflected, everything seemed different. And I think I was in constant code shifting mode, but I didn't know what the code was, if that makes sense, right? Like I know a lot of us first gen kids, we were normally code switching from family to school to back, right? But when we moved, everything seemed different. I moved to start junior year. And so going to a U.S. school, there's this emphasis on sports that I'd just never seen in Canada for high school sports. Cool, you played for your high school. Awesome. We moved down to the D.C. area, and my name's in the Washington Post. And you're like, this is a global newspaper. My buddies back home can pick up the box score at a newspaper stand and see what's going on. Pre-social media, pre-internet, that was different. The American exceptionalism is definitely like a very true concept where the universe very much in America revolves around being American and having a global perspective became very different. Having moved from Canada, you're like, yeah, here's what's happening in the fishing industry. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, well, can't you see this trend that's happened across Europe that then hit Mendel? Just not something that's, that's taught in schools. And, and it was fascinating to see that. And I think just that emphasis on globalization in other countries versus the U.S., I was in the International Baccalaureate program, so you're studying Russian lit, and I'm like, okay, this doesn't seem foreign to me because I've studied Russia enough. 
but to a lot of American kids are like, oh, like, why would you have this revolution? You're like, man, did you know what was going on in Russia at that time? It had to be so bad that, of course, they're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. It's interesting that you talk about that perspective on globalization, because on a previous episode, Sravya, who was another guest, came on and she did the same move from Canada to the, to the U.S., right? And she spoke about differences in how diversity is perceived in Canada and the U.S. Did you feel a difference in that regard? And did you feel like maybe you had to hide your South Asian side a little more when you're in the U.S.? I think it was different. I think it... So again, Calgary is very different than a lot of parts of Canada. It's not Vancouver, it's not Toronto, which are more diverse. Calgary's diverse now, but 20 years ago, it wasn't there. And we lived in a part of the city that was super not diverse. Most of the Indian folks we knew lived in the other quadrant. So I routinely was the only brown kid in my space, unless my younger brother happened to also be there. In Canada, though, Canada really emphasizes this idea of being a mosaic. And therefore, every person adds to the culture. And I think we still see that now. So growing up, my dad was very big on like, you're Canadian now. He was big on like, you're not really Indian, because if I drop you in India, you have no clue how to get home. And it's something that stuck with me my whole life. Right? You're like, oh, that's interesting. Where are you on that spectrum? And I've grown up, I, was a ho- I liked watching hockey. I was, uh, I was reading books about sports. But... I didn't have the Bollywood tie-in. I didn't have, there wasn't a Tamil community in Calgary. The closest we had was, there was a larger Malayali community, but that was strange because I didn't understand it. So we'd go to the functions and I'd just sit there and be like, cool. So there wasn't the opportunity to connect. And I'd spend some summers in Toronto and I think it was a little bit more pronounced in Toronto. But, but in Canada, the brown community there is super diverse socioeconomically. My dad as a mechanic isn't such an outlier. Whereas when we moved to the U.S., my dad being a mechanic became such a sticking point because U.S. immigration policy for years and years and years was like, we're taking doctors, lawyers, engineers, computer programmers, or a professor. That's our cutoff. Or somebody's going to come start a business. So they're owning business. My dad is like a blue collar laborer was so outside the realm. And this old school stereotype from Indians would come back out, right? Like, Oh, must be uneducated, must be lower, ca- like all these weird things. And so it took me a while to like, to be honest, to like want to hang out with Indians in the U.S. Because like, I don't understand that. And they all seem to know each other, which baffled me. Like, I was like, how do you guys all know each other? And there was a, a weird ego that went with it, especially around, among guys, where they felt this need to prove some kind of alphaness. Because... Indian men weren't viewed as alpha males for so long in American culture. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a feeling that you want to overcome the stereotypes. I've talked about this with other Indian friends where when I was younger, I would almost intentionally, subconsciously, but intentionally distance myself from other Indian people because I didn't want people to apply stereotypes that didn't actually fit my mold. And I think that's where it really stems from. I wonder if you fell into that trap during high school because you were playing basketball, right? You were heavily involved in sports at the time. And again, uh, my parents are not the stereotypes. And so my dad has these stories where my dad was a great athlete. And so he has these stories where when he first moved to Canada, a Belgian immigrant was jawing at him. You Indians are weak. Like I can knock you out. Like just really 
workforce bullying racism, right? And this is a story I got from this this gentleman years later. It's pretty funny because he ended up friends. But uh, he's going at my dad and he's like, look, I can beat you up with a heartbeat. I used to do this. And my dad's like, cool, like, let's go. And again, this being recounted to me from someone else. So my dad boxed in high school in India. And the dude says, as soon as he puts his hands up, my dad apparently hits the man so hard he breaks two ribs and sends this guy to the hospital, right? Like the guy doesn't even get, like, get his shot out. And he's like, oh, I've never met. And so like, I really grew up in this, in this, with this mindset of like, you've got to be able to, to dance if you need to. So for me, that edge existed. But I would feel like in Indian only environments, there was this social jockeying that was happening. And I was like, I don't really want to be part of that at that time. I think the, like, again, eras are shifting. Um, there's a fascinating book, actually. It's a PhD by a professor at Columbia who wrote on like the alpha maleness of Indi Indian Americans and playing basketball. But it's exactly that because our, a lot of our parents wouldn't let us compete with other people or had this false perception that we could not compete. I think I've heard that so often. Like, oh, you're, you're Indian, you're brown, you can't jump with a black kid. You can't run with this white kid, right? Like they have these stereotypes that they put on ourselves. And I think so then they limit where their kids can interact and compete, which changes that perception. Whereas my dad was like, if you can make a team, cool, go do that. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. And so in high school, you're playing basketball. And I've heard the admiration with which you speak about Coach Week, who played with John Wooden at UCLA. There's almost like a sense of legacy there, right? As you're playing for this coach. Do you think that was a reason why basketball stuck for you or were there other reasons? Yeah, I think there's a few other reasons. So one was I was actually really big in soccer. My dad coached me in soccer for a long time. And the start of, let's say, second half of seventh grade, grade seven, I get cut from a select travel soccer team, which baffled me because I was one of the top athletes. And when I went to ask the coach, he looked at me and said, I want you to look at the rest of the kids and look at yourself and you'll see the difference. And to be honest, everybody else was white except for me. And I remember this sense of embarrassment, but like an embarrassment that I wasn't good enough to overcome what our parents had put in front of us. Uh, I think we've all heard at some point, right? You have to be twice as good as X person to, to get the job and stuff. I was like, oh, man. like I wasn't. I was, I was better than them. I just wasn't enough better to overcome the racism. And I felt definitely embarrassed. And I never told my dad that. And I remember reflecting me like, what sport is super inclusive that I'm not going to have this feeling again, or I shouldn't. And I, and, and basketball it was right. I was like, cool. Yeah. I see that being a very diverse sport. And so that was where that first learn of basketball came in. Start playing in grade eight, second half. And I figure it out. I happen to be pretty good. We moved to the U.S. And I remember Coach Sweek, first day or two of tryouts, he looks at me and he even says, you know, I've never seen an Indian kid who could really play. Which, side note, really weird comment because Coach Sweek is one of the first people who ran basketball camps in India. Literally, like, in the early 80s. I don't learn this till later. And I remember looking at him going, again, thinking back to what I mentioned earlier about my dad's comment. I'm like, yeah, but what about a Canadian kid? You ever seen a Canadian kid who can ball? And, you know, he kind of looked at me. I was like, yeah, yeah, I have. I was like, cool, because I'm Canadian. And so that stuck. But yeah, learning 
learning the coach wooden way, learning the pyramid of success and having this, well, we won 10 championships in a row. What did you do? It's pretty amazing. Or I remember working on a post move and coach week being like, listen, the way coach showed Kareem was X. And there's nothing you can say that's like, oh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar learned this. Why wouldn't I do it exactly the same way? And, and there is, like, to be part of the wooden coaching line is, it, it's a rare thing that people can say now. And it's a cool thing because, because you know it's done right. You know that it's about people and not about wins and losses. The wins and losses all happen, but it's about your long-term impact. And, and that was a huge part of, like, me understanding how sports can impact beyond the court yeah it's hilarious that he made that comment because i have often thought about the fact that india has the second largest population in the world and we can't put together a basketball team but to your point it's growing in popularity right we're starting to see some nba players now that are indian so after high school you went on you studied chemistry and journalism you got your master's in education and in 2010, you found Crossover, a nonprofit that's helping these marginalized communities with basketball. At the time, were you looking to do something in education and something in basketball? Like, what kind of sparked this idea? It was a combination. I'd finished my master's in ed leadership after my degree. I'd been working in education, and I'm sitting there looking at this, and I'm like, all right, I was working at some really high-end prep schools here in the U.S., and you're starting to play with the idea of what makes these kids special. Why am I at a school that 30% of the kids are going to an Ivy league? Like what's the secret sauce? And it's not that the kids were smart. Uh, I mean, they were smart, but 30% getting into schools that accept 6% is pretty staggering, mm -hmm. but it became these, the quote unquote soft skills. Are you able to be a leader? How can you determine your character, communication, teamwork? How are you as a grinder? What's your outlook? And I started playing with that. And I started thinking back. I finally started to acknowledge my mom's story was more than bluster, if that makes sense. I think we've all heard how hard our parents had it. And I think I was just like, yeah, yeah, sure, mom. And I remember traveling to India in like 09. And I, I was <laughs> talking to one of the nuns that raised her. And I was like, hey what can you give me that I can kind of hold over my mom? Tell me something, right? And, and they legit were like, oh no, for your mom to get out, she's the most pious child we've ever had. And I was like, who uses the term pious? I can't compete with pious. <laughs> right. And they, they explain how hard, and, and you referred to it, like my mom would steal candles from a church to light them at night to study uh, because she knew if she was in the top three, she could keep going to school. And I was like, there has to be an easier way. This is just, this isn't fair. And not even like equitable. It's just not like you don't have a chance. Like, why would a kid other than my mom do this? And again, I'm going back to, OK, I have this master's. I'm working in education, but teaching basketball at the same time. And man, you can teach so much through games. And I started doing my homework on India, right? You started digging in and you're like, oh, kids don't really get to play games in India, especially poor kids, kids in the slums, marginalized populations. Not only do they not get to play games, nobody's there to actually teach them how to play a game. There's just a whole jump of, if you don't have someone to actually show you how to catch a ball, why would you ever learn how to catch a ball? 
So there's that I'm playing with, you know, I'm doing, I'm being super academic at this. I'm looking at, you're like, oh, we should do cricket. You should do soccer. Man, but basketball fits India, like, especially in the urban centers, Chennai, Delhi, Mumbai, Hyderabad. They're all so much more population dense than New York City. Space is at a premium. Basketball doesn't require space. What else does basketball give us in India? It actually gives us an opportunity to impact girls. And it's because the boys, while they're marginalized, they may actually get a chance to play soccer or cricket on the street. That's totally fine. The girls are definitely not being involved. If I bring a new sport that they kind of can relate to, but it's fun, it's fast, but if they're all equally terrible at, what it does is it actually levels the playing field in one of the few places in the world that we can actually legit level the playing field. Because they're like, oh, what do I do with this? And I'm under the belief that for most 8 to 13-year-old boys, they're not inherently misogynistic. Yes, they are still, they've learned gender roles, but not inherently mis misogynistic in that they just want to be around people that they feel are worthy, right? like cool enough. You don't want to stick another kid out there that can't play sports with them, and they're like, that person's terrible. But again, now, if they're all equally terrible, they can't, you can't exclude somebody, right? It becomes a very inclusive terrible athletic environment what also happens is they are witnessing how quickly a girl can learn how to dribble how a girl can learn how to shoot and all of a sudden you're like oh look what happens when you change the parameters of the game and we've had this huge impact on the boys in that regard is that a benefit that you anticipated at the start of the program or is it something that you kind of observed as the program was running it was a theory but there's nobody else who's kind of run that test. And we would see it pop up where boys would talk about how weak girls were. And I'd say, okay, cool. Is your mom weak? No. Okay. Then every other girl but your mom is weak. Yes. Okay. And so we was like, it was important to, to model it. So again, by bringing younger volunteers, high school and college athletes were super important there. But we also looked at it from this perspective that there's a lot of programs that are geared exclusively towards girls. And there's no knock on that. However, in a place like India, in that environment, it can also be very dangerous to empower a girl without creating a parameters for her or a safe situation. I think a lot of your listeners can relate to this when I say, like, if you teach a girl to be confident and strong and all of a sudden she goes and appears to be mouthy to some random uncle, there's a pretty good chance she's going to get smacked for it. And nobody's going to blink an eye. Like, who do you think you are? right? But if we start playing the long game, and if we're teaching the boys in her community the same thing, that, hey, these girls are important, you got to give them a voice. Let's start with the classroom. If the boys are creating space in the classroom, it's eventually going to lead 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line to like the neighborhoods, the community around them, we're going to do a shift. And again, my perspective was coming back from my parents. If you take an orphan girl in India, what's your likeliness of succeeding? very little. What's your likeness of getting out? Zero. But if I said, hey, when you're 50, you're going to have kids who are going to like great American colleges and you're going to be living a middle-class lifestyle in the U.S. Here's what you got to do. Every kid would sign up. It wouldn't even be a question. You've talked about the fact that Crossover is not a program that's meant to generate the next Michael Jordan. It's meant to keep kids in school. When I think about playing basketball or playing sports, it's very easy for me to connect 
playing sports to those soft skills of leadership and communication, the ones that are helping those kids get into the Ivy League programs. But how is playing a sport helping kids stay in school? So another innovation we threw in after the first year was we asked for the teacher to attend with their students. So we started enrolling classrooms instead of individuals, which was a really important shift. So we want to bring in 30, 40 kids from a classroom and their teacher that the teacher is able to witness how we are teaching through sport, the fact that everything we do relates back to a theme of the day, and that the kids can have fun while doing it. You mentioned that I taught chemistry. A big thing I would say in chemistry that I say on the court is, I want you to make aggressive mistakes. And what I mean by that is, there are two types of mistakes typically in the world. There's an aggressive effort-based mistake, and there's the mistake of non-effort or non trying the non-starter right you can leave your page blank or you can start figuring out what you do know and hope it leads you somewhere and in sports it's the same thing you can either make a mistake because you're holding the ball or because you tried to make that pass and it didn't work and i'm like try to make that pass because we can do it again and again and again and sports is such a funny environment because nobody seems to mind grinding and doing repetitive practice in sports but they do in in school so when you flip that MO and you're like, hey, here's what you just did on the court, do the same thing at school. And the teacher, hey, look, let's credit you with starting. I'm going to celebrate you for taking the first step. That's an important celebration point. We started to shift that, that mindset of what exists and what should exist. And people get excited about that. And maybe it's because I do think outside the box on this stuff. And it sounds, so it sounds like you're kind of coaching the coach, you're teaching the teacher yep. uh, how to engage students. You're also teaching these kids the ability to grind and make good mistakes. They're able to transfer over to school. Yeah, I'm going to just follow one part of it. What we report is within like a week and a half. So before we're even done the two-week program, teachers are coming back and they're like, look, bullying is way down. Physical violence in my classroom is down. There's no more pushing in lines. In fact, the mindset has shifted and kids are being nice to each other. They see empathy go up. And a line that I totally have stolen from John F. Kennedy, so President Kennedy, right, is the idea of a rising tide lifts all boats. Now, I'm not saying everybody has a boat, because clearly we all are starting in different size boats or no boat. But when I share that, that's not a common theme across India. Coming out of colonialism, India is still very much fraught with the, there's one slice of pie and you're all fighting for that slice. But when we're like, hey, look, we can just bake more pies. We live in a world now that half of the jobs feels like don't have a physical product. We can just bake more pies. We can just create more opportunities for people. And so when you start putting that mindset into the kids of, look, rising tide lifts all boats. You're not competing. In fact, we all win. And you sell them on it, this team idea. The teachers are immediately like, wow, these kids are helping each other. And so what we've created is when kids are staying in school, it's because they've created their own support network. We've just kind of showed it that it exists. In 2012, when you started the program with your first cohort, you had 45 kids. How many do you have today? When we run a typical program, it's anywhere in the range of 450 to 500 kids show up at one time for those two weeks. And that's kind of where we've settled as being a a safe efficient space for us to run a program because there's still only one of me every year we have over a thousand kid wait list we just can't manufacture 
an action. Like we haven't figured out the, the tipping point and part of it has to do with funding. Part of it has to do with time. COVID's given us a huge opportunity to rethink that. But of course, how do you do it while not worrying about today's worries at the same time? Speak to me a little bit more about that, because I think when you start any sort of venture, like getting that first donor check is super hard. Getting that first volunteer is super hard. But once you pick up momentum, your challenges change, right? So what are some of the challenges that you're facing as the company grows? Yeah. So a huge mistake I made was being too altruistic. And by that, I mean, all right, you gave me $100. I want to make sure that $100 is impacting the kids. So at no point did we say, okay, we're going to take $10 and put it aside towards marketing purposes, materials, collateral, video. I wish we had. Like I did not invest because in my mind, we're doing good work. The results are going to show it's data driven, but I did lose the fact that a lot of storytelling was going to come down the line video and that people need to see it. They can't just, they're not always going to take your word. So that's been our challenge. And I think in any venture, we're seeing this more and more, right? The behind the scenes, the documenting of the story is so important to gaining traction. So we've definitely been trying to repivot that uh, because like if I go to Nike or if I go to Converse or Puma, like, okay, show me more. You're like, okay, I've got these four videos. Okay, where's more? And you're like, well, we don't have more. Here's what we've put together. And so we've, I mean, I think we've put together pretty good stuff, but not where it should be. And I'm pretty cognizant of that. And so that's where that challenge has shifted how do you go from being real, which I think a lot of people acknowledge were real, to a broad base? Hey, this is cool, and it's worth me throwing ten bucks at. And how do we keep that engagement going? Because again, when you're small, you can talk to every customer or donor whenever you want. When you get bigger, you're like, oh, okay. How do I create that flywheel approach that you're constantly there's this cycle of engagement? that creates and generates. But how do you do that when you don't have employees? You know, that's what we're solving. And also how do you, because the next level is, cool, you're, you've been doing this effectively for a few years, John. What's your scale? Like, cool, you're doing 500 kids. How do you get to 50,000 kids and do it fast? So it sounds like you found, you're looking for and finding ways to translate the impact into emotion for donors and also to kind of scale the program. You hinted at this earlier, but the organization is entirely volunteer run. Do you find that your volunteers are people that love basketball or that want to have an impact similar to the question I asked for your motivation, but why, why do people come to crossover to volunteer? I think there's a plethora of reasons and some are great and some not so much. Some are more individualistic. And I think we run into that and we look at it very carefully. We've had a lot of people reach out who are like, hey, I want to get involved because I want to find a Michael Jordan. I want to sign the next kid. And, and I've had somebody really get angry at us when we turn them down to volunteer. Some of our Brown compatriots get really angry. I'm like, no, it's not that we, we don't think that's not a cool thing. It's just not what we do. We've had Indian uncles who have absolutely offered to quote unquote make donations, but more as like an investment that they get an ROI on a future pro, which when you stop and you think about the fact that you're trying to make and invest in a kid and get an ROI on a kid, there's all sorts of moral, ethical issues <laughs> that should pop up to buying stock into a child is not what any of us want to do. So it sounds like mission creep is something that you really have to think about when you're picking your volunteers. Yep. But then on the other side, for the first few years, 
we were very heavily white volunteered based, not good, not bad. Just it's what it was, the demographic. And people seeing this as an opportunity to travel, to see the world, we were really, really straightforward about a few things. Like we're not volunteerism. This isn't a resort vacation. Uh, we're going to be grinding. We're going to be working. We're going to introduce you to the rich part of India. We're going to introduce you to the slums of India. I do a whole, we created a whole lesson on like, hey, you got to understand colonial and post-colonial India so that you can understand what these cycles of poverty look like. Why are these people trapped? Why is it that it's families think it's okay for a kid to drop out when they're 12 years old? And it's not that they don't love their kid. It's that, dude, it costs money to feed someone. And then all of a sudden, in the last few years, we've had this surge, and social media has a huge effect on this, of brown diaspora who want to volunteer. And that was unexpected for me, being very, very transparent, because I just didn't think it existed on the scale it does. And, and so all of a sudden, you're getting this generation, and you're falling into this generation of people who are like, this is cool. I want to get involved. And what all of a sudden that happened is there's a tipping point where it's like, wow, there's other people like me who love sports, who love, who want to learn about India, but not the India that my parents want to show me. Like, I don't need to go to fancy restaurants and to every uncle and auntie's house. Like, that's not how you learn about India, but that's what our parents want to do when they go back home. In 2017, our entire volunteer cohort of students was actually Indian American, which was so cool and so strange it made me feel very old simultaneously and kids from all over the country and what's cool like we're riding in the bus we're riding on the plane and they're all sharing almost the exact same story just with different names oh i have an aunt who said that i'll never get into a good college if i play sports i have an uncle who said this is a waste of time this like all of them and they're all like oh my gosh i found my people like i found a community that gets me and not I don't know how to describe the pride that goes with that. I was like, this is cool. Like I just created a cool new environment and they get it. And I think that's what we're starting to see a shift into now. So I'm 41, but the, but the generation younger than me is really like, this is something that makes sense. People my age, a lot of them look at me like I'm nuts. People younger than me go, oh, this makes sense. I get to learn about India through my own eyes. I'm traveling to India without my parents, but I'm being around people that get me and I get to play basketball and I get to learn it. And I think that's been a really cool shift. And we've had to create a whole curriculum that surrounds that. So that volunteer base is very pure. Like, I think there's something very genuine. We, we've established such a culture that we're not worried about people trying to take selfies with poor kids for their Instagram page. You do the work, we'll get the documentation. These kids aren't props. Don't use them as props. And, and that's pretty cool. There's definitely a sense, I think, of there's a desire to make impact in this generation. And so that's another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was just looking at having a career or thinking about your career more broadly. It really stands out to me that you're running this organization, which I'm sure is time consuming and probably where you're spending a lot of your day. But on top of that, you have a full-time job. So can you speak to just how you thought of your career in the early days? And initially, were you worried that building crossover was going to take away from the giant career that many of us Indian Americans feel the pressure to have? So when I first started crossover, a few different things as I spoke about, but another one was there was a lot of, in the basketball world, hesitation of like a brown coach. 
And I think we've seen that, right? And I was like, oh, this is a cool way to also for me to show leadership. Another stereotype among a lot of Brown people is like, hey, we're great workers. We're not always like the best leaders, probably because a lot of our parents have really worked hard to have us fly under the radar of racism. Just kind of float there, do your work, you'll be fine. But it doesn't really establish you as a vocal leader at the same time. And so I was like, all right, this will show that. But yeah, I think for me, it was a lot of it was like, this seems cool. It doesn't exist. Why not try it out? If it doesn't work, okay, I got to go hang out in India for a bit and figure it out. But as it grew, it was like, this is a whole different endeavor. And I think I probably took a different approach than a lot of nonprofit founders, which is I went and attended a thousand for-profit startup bootcamp type ideas. I'd hit up MIT startup bootcamp, Northeastern. I'd go to Mass Challenge. I was like, let me learn how to run this like a lean enterprise. And then I'll have a better understanding. Because again, coming out of education, nobody's ever worrying too much about budgets or ROIs or how do you display metrics. Metrics so your kids go to good colleges. End of story. So I think that approach really helped. And it gave you a different perspective. It pushed me to be a leader. And I think it was cool because you can just start. And I think people are shocked by that. Because there's a lot of people who are about my age who are like, oh, this is so cool. I can't believe you started this. And I was like, I didn't know what I was doing really when I started it. I just thought it was neat. And that if you have the right people around you, it'll work. But early on, I guess what I'm hinting at is many of our families came to the U.S. for economic opportunity. So we feel the pressure to build a career where we'll get a return on that. Or many of us feel like, yeah, we want to do the nonprofit thing or the impact thing, but we don't see that as our end-all be-all. Ultimately, it's, oh, I'll do TFA, but later I'm going to do X. So from that perspective, were you thinking about those things when you were younger or were you always just impact-driven and this was what you were going to do? I think I was always impact-driven, but I think I was gung-ho set on being a pediatric, uh, some type of pediatric, right? Like I knew I liked working with kids. I probably was looking at pediatric oncology. Like I was like, look, nobody really wants to major in chemistry. I major in chemistry because I happen to be good at it and I like to kind of learn it, but I didn't want to major in bio, but I knew you had to do those things. Like I took the MCATs, did well. And I remember being like, I, so, so just like everyone else, right? I'm going to go teach for a year. And instead of doing TFA, I went and taught at a boarding private school outside of Philadelphia. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> You're paying me to like run experiments in the classroom and to teach kids and to play sports with them. This sounds pretty great. And I remember doing that and then moving back down to DC. And my mom was like, when are you going? When are you going to med school? Right? Like, come on, time to, time to hang it up. I was like, no, I, I'm really loving this. She's like, great. Okay. When are you going to get your master's? It's like, oh, well, yeah, I could go do that. So I, I went and got a master's in, in ed leadership. And I remember my mom having this conversation at, like, literally at my commencement in a Catholic hour. She's like, okay, when are you going to get your PhD? And I was just like, but I don't need one. And my younger brother, who is brilliant, he's an engineer. And I was like, look, you already got an engineer. Like, you're good. Like, you don't need me to go. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to be fine, but I'm not going to be superstar rich. Crazy, because you talked about going to all these startup camps. You've not only learned how to have an impact, but you've learned the business side, the leadership side. So you have all the skill sets that maybe a PhD would get you or like a high ranking, high prestige job would get you. But I think one thing I've noticed is 
a lot of South Asian parents, they because of their concerns about their children's economic well-being and stuff, they don't tend to maybe fully grasp what you're doing in the sense that they're looking more at the security side than the skill sets you're picking up. I, I hinted at it, and I'm glad you, you circled back to it. Because like, I pushed my dad then, and I was like, Dad, why, why are brown parents so obsessed, right? Doctors, engineer, lawyer, these fields. And again, my dad, my dad's a mechanic, but he's super smart. He just didn't have the opportunities that I have. He was like, look, what we're trying to do with you kids is we know what racism looks like in this country. And we know what, is, what the fight and the struggle is, regardless of who you are. Those are all industries where it's hard for somebody to say, no, I don't want the best doctor. Give me a white doctor. I remember when he said it, I was like, why didn't you just tell me this at 15? Like, I would have understood that. But I don't think our parents have that verbiage or think we would get it because they're trying to protect us at every turn. But my dad was very clear. Look, if you're a doctor and a person comes in and they're like, I need you to save my foot. It would take a huge leap for a person to say, no, 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 don't give me the brown doctor. Again, he's a mechanic. And he was like, but in my industry where it's blue collar and it's tough, it's super easy for someone to say that. And that conversation really hit home because I was like, oh, I get where you're coming from. And it was, again, it was a place of love. It's kind of their love language to us. We want to make sure that you don't encounter the racism. And I was like, that's it's just it's 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 poetically beautiful and yet we grew up here and we're like man you guys don't even know some of the stuff we went through in school because we were too embarrassed on the other side to share because we know the struggles you've gone through we don't want to tell you guys what we're fighting sometimes i do want to pivot sean i know we have just a couple minutes here left you're visiting chennai every summer now in a previous interview you mentioned that when you take your dad there now, you're the one that can point out the places to eat and stuff, which is just mind-boggling. I mean, you you had mentioned being dropped in India and not being able to navigate, and I think most South Asian Americans feel that way. Do you feel more Indian now that you've been back a couple of times? I don't know if the term's more Indian, but I definitely feel home. And, and like that it's a home I that I'm still learning, but almost like, but it's still home now. Like hanging out in Chennai, I've got my spots. There are restaurants where I walk in and the owner will come out and he's like, Oh, you're back. Like, I'm so excited. To see right. And my dad's like, my dad thinks this is awesome. And last year I didn't get to go to Chennai, but I went to Delhi and Mumbai and it didn't feel too out of place. Look, I'm always going to stand out as a foreigner in India. Like there's just no way for me to ever height alone nobody's ever going to think i'm there and i shave my head no one's that's just not something somebody does in india but i can navigate and it feels cool and i know where the malls are and i know where like i know how to duck around or go to a market and there's something neat about being able to reconnect but again you feel like you fit in and you still feel like you don't uh, i mentioned my mom and so one of the schools we engage with is my mom's alma mater all girls orphanage school run by nuns or single moms now, stuff like that. But when I'm there and I speak to those girls, it's the funniest conversation because I'm like, look, my mom went to your school. And they're like, no, she didn't. I'm like, no, really? My mom lived there. I know where this is. So a few years ago, I, I learned I had to go get street cred from the nuns. Hey, 
Sister Kochu, can you tell them my mom's one of them? And then the look on their faces, there's, there's an impact there of like in 30 years, 40 years, you can have a kid like this. This is where your family could be. But I'm still a foreigner to them. Like there's zero way you fit in. And yet you start to feel like you you belong just like anywhere, right? Like you start learning your spot. Here's my coffee shop. Here's my go-to spot for a restaurant. Here's my go-to to grab seafood. And, and I think that is comforting on a different level than, do I feel like a Chennite? Nah. Do I feel a fondness and that like, it's a place kind of like when you go to college, these were my spots. And I know that it doesn't mean I'm from that city, but this is my world. There's part of me here. And, uh, and I think that's really cool. And it's a cool way to learn about your roots. And I feel so much more connected to that now where I can speak about it. I can share, I kind of understand mannerisms versus just when I used to travel back when I was younger and be in these conversations that I didn't get. And now that I'm older, because of what I do, the fact that no, none of our parents are ever going to walk us through the slums. They're not going to walk us through those neighborhoods. And I'm perfectly comfortable walking through them. The fact that you can do that or you understand it and you learn it, it's irreplaceable to those experiences that we do it ourselves and, uh, and you figure it out. So, Sean, where can people find you or find Crossover online? Sure. Our website is crossover-india.org. On Instagram, it's straight up crossover basketball. And on Twitter, because our handle is so old, they had character limits. It was crossover b-ball. But I think those are our main places to connect with us, talk to us. Yet, not just interns or random people running the account. Probably going to run into me pretty quick. And we are. We're looking for awesome, good people who, who connect. Half our volunteers have been girls and half are guys. And we're looking into starting a young professional board in 2021. And putting together just awesome, again, people who have this great mind belief. Maybe they don't want to work for a nonprofit, but they want to find ones they're passionate about and that they're going to want to grow and see grow. And so, I mean, we've hacked it 10 years. I think we're, we've shown we're not fly by night. So hopefully we can keep, to, keep that momentum going. Appreciate the work you're doing. It was great meeting you, Sean. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.